1: I have you loud and clear.
2: Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome.
3: <laughs> Science.
4: And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or
3: the, time. the brain, life, the universe. This week, conversations about climate change. Are humans hardwired to ignore the threat? And what might happen to us if we do? Plus, in the news, how alcohol consumption can come back to
5: bite you, the seven new planets discovered by NASA, and goal scoring bees.
3: I'm Georgia Mills. I'm Kat Arnie, and this is The Naked Scientists.
4: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk.
3: Just over a year ago, the UK government reduced the guideline amount of alcohol that's considered safe from 21 units per week to 14. But the recently published Health Survey for England shows that the average weekly intake for men is about 15 units, and for women it's about 9. In other words, some people are drinking a lot more heavily than perhaps they ought to. But is there evidence that this actually does any damage? And can a young person get away with it as long as they cut down later in life? A lot of the data we have at the moment is from a single snapshot of people's lives, and so it may not be giving the whole story. Dara O'Neill from UCL has looked at the drinking habits of a number of people over several decades and how this has
6: ultimately affected their blood vessels. Chris Smith has the story. Arterial stiffness is an indicator of cardiovascular disease risk, and research has traditionally relied on cross-sectional research, which is just looking at acute alcohol consumption. But by looking at intake longitudinally, we are deepening the understanding of uh, the way in which alcohol intake over time is related to the stiffening of arteries.
4: I suppose that following people up over a period of time also captures how people's drinking behaviour changes because as people age, they're likely to drink different amounts and this is likely in turn to have a different effect rather than just looking once.
6: Correct, yes. And people's health changes over time and that can actually influence their drinking behaviours. There's a concept known as the sick quitter hypothesis which is that people stop drinking as a consequence of the onset of poor health. And it's something that potentially explains research findings that show that former drinkers may be at a greater risk of poor health compared to people who consistently drink moderately over time.
4: People talk about a J-shaped curve, don't they, where um, along the x-axis on the graph is the amount of alcohol that people drink. And then on the y-axis is their risk of having a problem. That's right. Yeah. And and people who drink no alcohol appear to have or report drinking no alcohol, appear to have a higher health risk profile than someone who actually drinks quite a lot. And so you're saying that it could be that within those numbers could well be these sick quitters who've given up drinking, but they have already done damage, therefore they appear to be unhealthy and not drinking.
6: Yeah, that's correct.
4: So how did you do the study and who did you look at?
6: This study is based on a cohort study, which is a longitudinal study of UK civil servants. And These participants were recruited originally in around 1985. There was just over 10,000 of them back then. They took part in repeated assessments of lifestyle behaviours, underwent medical screenings, provided alcohol intake data from the very beginning. More recently, these individuals also took part in what are known as pulse wave velocity assessments, which measured the stiffness of their arteries. We used their longitudinal alcohol intake data to look at its relationship to that stiffening and to how that stiffening subsequently develops over time.
4: Well, before you tell us what happened with the stiff arteries, do you believe these people? The reason for my skepticism is that one of the first things I was always taught at medical school was you take anything anyone tells you and double it, whether it's cigarettes or booze. So this is self reported alcohol consumption, isn't it? So actually, their intake could have been dramatically different to reality.
6: That's correct. There's always that possibility, and we do acknowledge that in this study. But uh, previous analysis with this data have shown that there is a consistency between the reporting at the time point that they provided us, you know, so what they provided us in the past, with retrospective accounts. So it seems to suggest that there is at least some validity in the data that they're providing us.
4: And you're able to capture with this the history of, of how much alcohol and when they consumed it, and what their arteries look like today, effectively. Correct, yeah. And what does
6: it show? What we found is that those that have consistently drank above 14 units of alcohol a week, those individuals have significantly greater stiffness in their arteries at the beginning of early old age compared to those who consistently drank within the low risk limits, so below that threshold of 14 units a week. And we also found that those that stopped drinking over time showed an increased acceleration in their arteries' stiffness during a subsequent interval of four to five years Do you think that they are the sick quitters? That is a possibility. Uh, We haven't been able to identify for sure, but we have seen that there is some uh, change in their self-reported health over time, those that do desist from drinking. But I think there's further analysis to be performed there to clarify that and to answer that with certainty.
4: And the ones who were the consistently heavy drinkers, this does appear then to have translated into effectively a premature ageing effect in their blood vessels.
6: That's correct. That's how we've interpreted it.
4: Based on what you found then, what are your conclusions? What, what do you think this tells us about the way in which we use and abuse alcohol?
6: It suggests that by ignoring the uh, health guidelines in terms of uh, low-risk drinking behaviours, people are putting themselves potentially at an increased risk of um, cardiovascular ageing over time and that there is you know, a benefit to people to... Uh, adhere to those safe drinking guidelines and to not consume in excess of 14 units a week.
3: Well he sounds like my mother there. Beware your past drinking sins will find you out maybe especially if you're a civil servant. That was Dara O'Neill from UCL and his paper was published in the Journal of the American Heart Association.
5: Now, you may have heard this week the exciting discovery of seven brand spanking new planets. In a solar system 39 light-years away, the planets orbit an ultra-cool dwarf star about the size of Jupiter called Trappist-1, and some of them are likely to contain liquid water. So could this mean they also host life? We're joined by one of the scientists who was part of the international team of astronomers to make the discovery, Amory Trio from Cambridge University's Institute of Astronomy. Hi, Amory. Good evening. First off, how do you go about hunting for a new planet?
7: We just wait for the planet to pass in front of the star as it does, so it casts a shadow. And from how deep the shadow is, then uh, we measure, well, we know that there is a planet, and we also measure the size and how frequently the shadow comes back. We measure the orbital period of the planet.
5: I see. So you you had your sights on this star and you just sort of waited to see if planets passed in front of it?
7: Pretty much, yeah. We had um, a survey. So we looked at different stars and on that one, planets passed. What do we know about them? What we know is their size and the masses. So we know they have sizes very similar to the Earth and masses similar to the Earth. Once you have radius and mass, you know the composition the density. And that is consistent at the moment with uh, rocks, which uh, allows us to tell uh, that they're Earth like, essentially. Oh, wow.
5: And um, what about things like their orbit time? And say you and I were sitting on one of these planets, what would it look like? What would it be like?
7: Uh, Well, uh, the site would be remarkable. The the planets are really close to one another and really close to the star. The star being small, to get good temperature, all the planets are really compact. Say you were on uh, TRAPPIST-1f, for instance, the star would be three and a quarter times uh, larger in uh, size, but in area it would look ten times bigger than the Sun. So uh, humans are very good at uh, noticing area rather than size itself. And the nearest other planet, TRAPPIST-1g, would be of order twice the size of the moon but it would not be always there only when the planets were at conjunction so once per orbit essentially every nine or actually 10 days or so you would see this orb in the sky which is another planet
5: Wow and considering how close they are to their to their star do we think they might be able to host life?
7: The star is small uh, it's uh, quite cool compared to the Sun and so the energy that the planets receive is similar to what the earth uh, receives. We're actually quite excited. Uh, there is a lot of potential that if the atmospheric and geological conditions at the surface of the planets are are good, and if there is water, then this could exist at the liquid uh, form, which is essential for life.
5: Why is this thought that there might be liquid water there?
7: So we don't know uh, yet if there is liquid water. We actually uh, say that all seven planets are temperate, meaning that under like specific conditions they could host liquid water. For three of them, I think the chances are much higher. But you could imagine that, say, for the furthest planet out, which is quite cold, if you have a lot of greenhouse gas, they would trap the heat and allow liquid water to persist. So what's great is that now we have seven targets that we can check. How do we check them? Using the same method as we detect them, the planet passes in front of the star, some of the starlight shines uh, through the planet's atmosphere, and we notice a signal that 's a minute signal is what we will investigate now,
5: something like um, say for example, there was alien life be very exciting, but what if it was like bacteria or all these very small things? How would we know from just from their imprint over the sun?
7: Well, here we rely on what we know on life on earth. Uh, life on Earth has changed our atmosphere dramatically, meaning uh, that if similar amount of life uh, is over there uh, and changes in a similar amount uh, the atmosphere then we would notice that but it requires several ingredients right life needs to be present and change things significantly
5: and uh, these planets I think they're 39 light years away mm-hmm. that's quite far so we'll probably never get there so what's the, what's the point of actually studying them
7: we only have one example for biology at the moment in the solar system so we want to go beyond a sample of just one the the, the key ca- question here for an astronomer is not is there life elsewhere we think there must be somewhere but how frequently does it happen if you have the right condition is it every planet every planet in 10 every one in 10000 that's i think a key question in understanding our position within the many outcomes of nature.
5: That was anne Trio from Cambridge University. And if you want to find a bit more about the planets for yourself, or there's some quite cool concept art, you can
3: check out www.trappist.one. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat Arney, and with Georgia Mills. Still to come, the bees that can be trained to score goals and the things we talk about when we talk about climate change.
5: And speaking of climate, before we get to that, Tim Revel has been celebrating the seasons in this week's Myth Conception.
8: As we begin to emerge from winter in the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere slides towards autumn, it's high time to debunk a common seasonal myth conception. Which is that because the Earth is tilted, when the Northern Hemisphere leans towards the Sun, it's a little bit closer to our heat source, and so the Northern Hemisphere experiences summer. The myth sounds good, intuitive even, but it's totally wrong. The Earth's orbit around the Sun is not a circle. It's actually a squashed circle known as an ellipse. This means that at certain times of the year, our planet is quite a bit closer to the Sun than at others. In January, for example, the Earth is 5 million kilometres closer to the Sun than in July. Now, this does cause some slight temperature differences, but it doesn't produce the seasons. In fact, the Northern Hemisphere experiences summer when the Earth is farthest from the Sun. So what about the tilt? Well, Earth's tilt is about 23.5 degrees from the vertical. In July, this means that the Northern Hemisphere points towards the Sun, and the Southern Hemisphere points away... Six months later, when Earth has travelled to the other side of the Sun, the roles are reversed, with the northern hemisphere tilting away and the southern hemisphere tilting towards the Sun. The seasonal tilt makes a part of the Earth only a teeny weeny bit closer to the Sun compared to the tens of millions of kilometres we are away from it. So it's not the change in distance that causes the seasons. It's the angle. During summer, sunlight consistently hits that patch of the Earth at a more direct angle, and for longer which all adds up to more heat arriving and warmer weather. Meanwhile, the southern hemisphere points away, getting sunlight at a less direct angle over a shorter day, and so it experiences winter. Interestingly, over very long periods of time, Earth's tilt actually changes, moving between 21.4 degrees and 24.4 degrees. This means we're actually wobbling back and forth as we move through space, but this wobble is so slow that it takes 41,000 years to complete. This is far too gradual to affect the seasons in the short term, but over long timescales we think it plays a role in the formation of ice ages. Currently we're slowly wobbling towards the upright position. This means that very, very gradually the seasons will become a little less extreme. We're also not the only planet that has seasons, Uranus lies almost completely on its side, tilting at an angle of 97 degrees, and so experiences extreme seasons. Whereas Venus hardly has any tilt at all, so experiences very little in the way of seasonal differences. Why on Earth the Earth actually tilts at all, we're not quite sure. It's thought that probably early on in its history, the planet was hit by something sufficiently large to knock us slightly off-kilter. It's not a bad theory. Earth certainly took a lot of hits early on. In fact, one of the collisions was so large that a leftover lump became the moon. Seasons really are nothing to do with our distance away from the sun. What really matters is the angle at which the sunlight hits us. If you're heading to the beach to top up your tan, you better hope that your part of the planet is tilting towards the sun for an awesome angular hit of sunbeams.
5: And, of course, don't forget your sun cream. Meanwhile, if there's some suspicious-sounding science you've come across you'd like us to debunk, drop us a line at chris at nakedscientist.com and we'll take a look for you.
3: Cocaine used to be the drug of the rich and famous, but over recent years it's become cheaper and more readily available. And as a result, more and more people are becoming addicted. A report last year from the UK Government Advisory Council found that 1 in 10 people between the ages of 16 and 59 had used the drug at some point. The current treatment for cocaine addicts is through therapy, but relapse rates remain high. Now, a new study has linked cocaine addiction with a build-up of iron in certain parts of the brain, and particularly areas known to control our inhibitions, although the team don't yet know what the iron is doing there. Tom Crawford spoke with lead author Dr. Karen Ursher.
2: So, we found for the first time that people with cocaine addiction have disruptions in their regulation of iron, and we found that they have reduced iron levels in the blood and increased levels of iron in the brain.
9: And what did you actually do in this study to find these results?
2: So, we asked all our participants to have a brain scan, and we used a very specific scanner, and with this estimate, how much iron is in the brain and we also took blood samples and did the standard test.
9: Accumulation of excessive iron in the brain is actually very bad as it's highly toxic and can lead to cell death. Similar examples can be seen in other brain degenerative diseases such as Parkinson's and dementia. But in terms of cocaine addiction the iron doesn't appear everywhere
2: the increase in iron was very specific in, uh, in the brain. It was uh, selective in the globus pallidus, which is a nucleus deep down in the brain. And it's involved in inhibition. And we know that people with cocaine addiction have problems with inhibition. And the globus pallidus is also involved in, in avoidance learning, which we know that people with cocaine addiction have problems avoiding adversity. So it is tempting to speculate that you know we have found here an angle which might be related to problems that we see in the clinic.
9: And now that you've sort of discovered this link between buildup of iron in the brain and lower levels of iron in the blood and this link to cocaine addiction, could could this lead to new treatments, new preventative measures, sort of what's what are the possibilities here with this discovery?
2: Well, first of all, we need to address two critical questions. We need to find out what is causing this. So, how is cocaine disrupting iron regulation. And there are different possibilities. So one would be chronic cocaine users are vulnerable to infection and uh, inflammation. And this could disrupt iron homeostasis. On the other hand, we also know that cocaine users have quite an appetite for fat and fatty food, which could hamper the absorption of iron. Another possibility would be that cocaine destroys or weakens the blood brain barrier, so that more iron leaks into the brain. I mean, we need to also find out what this buildup of iron is actually doing in the brain. Whether it's associated with the severity of, of addiction, so we found a relationship between the amount of iron accumulated and the duration of cocaine use.
9: And so, I guess to come up with new possible treatment methods by understanding more about the effect that cocaine has on the brain, this this hopefully will lead to you know potential new avenues of treatment, possibly one of your future goals?
2: Yes, that's right. And I think we, we have, there's there's quite a lot of literature out there on the changes that we see in the brain, but we know fairly little about the mechanism, how these changes come about and what is the role of cocaine? How does cocaine interact with brain cells. And if cocaine interferes with iron regulation, iron metabolism, that would be really a
3: new avenue to provide treatment. That's Karen Ayrshire from the University of Cambridge and that study was published in the journal Translational Psychiatry.
5: Now you may have heard of fiverside, but what about aside Using a sugar water treat, scientists have discovered that they can train bees to kick a ball about. Ricky Navani spoke with Clint Perry to find out why.
1: The biggest finding, or one of the biggest findings, is that bees were able to learn this very unnatural task. Uh, Normally, bees uh, in nature, they move into flowers. They don't really manipulate them to any uh, complex degree. They just push forward into flowers to find uh, uh, the nectar or the pollen. Here, we train them to actually roll a ball into a specific region to gain a reward, Uh, sugar water, to access to sugar water. They were able to learn this socially. Uh, In the first experiment, we used a plastic dummy bee to push the ball into the center and have the bees watch this, observe this demonstration. Uh, And they were able to pick it up. All the bees trained were able to pick this up. So we were then interested in what about this social learning was important for them. So in a second experiment, we trained them in a, a variety of manners. One, they observed a live bee. Uh, demonstrating how to roll the ball into the hole uh, to gain reward and in another situation we used a magnet underneath the platform to move the ball so they didn't see anything or anyone moving the ball but just the ball moving itself the bees who saw the live demonstration saw the task much more quickly than bees who saw just the uh, magnet moved ball but just the ball moving on its own was enough uh, for the bees to learn
10: But actually, they pick up on that a lot faster if they see another bee doing that. Is that correct?
1: That's right. And this was the purpose of the second experiment. Bees didn't simply copy what they saw, but they actually improved upon what they observed, the strategy that they saw. So in experiment two, the live demonstrators always moved the furthest ball from the center into the center. And they had three possibilities, one that was seven centimeters away, one that was five, and one that was two. And the live demonstrators always moved the furthest ball. And that's what the observers saw each time during the uh, training sessions. But during the tests, the observers moved the closest ball into the center, and therefore uh, improved upon the strategy that they saw and didn't simply copy what they observed.
10: Wow, that's really quite uh, unbelievable. Sorry, that was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) What I was going to say is it is quite impressive, all jokes aside, that you guys didn't demonstrate this to the bees at all. They kind of naturally worked out that they could move one of the closer balls in and have a much more efficient solution to this problem.
1: Right. And an important point of that is that we ran controls to make sure that they weren't using simpler mechanisms. One being just knowing that they weren't paying attention to the position of the ball, they moved the closest ball into the center. But also we changed the color of the closest ball to black instead of yellow, which is what they saw during the training sessions. And they still moved that black ball, the closest ball, in the vast majority of of tests.
10: And this is the first time that that kind of behaviour has been studied extensively?
1: Yeah, as far as we know, yes.
10: So bees, naturally compared to loads of other animals that we've observed, have tiny brains. Would you necessarily expect bees to be capable of this kind of thing? And what's the significance of studying this kind of behaviour in bees as opposed to larger animals?
1: Most of us, uh, when we see bees or insects of any type, we, uh, we look at those as genetically pre-programmed, unthinking machines, and oftentimes as pests and whatnot. But there's no real behavior that's been shown to require a large brain. Many, many, I mean, decades of of research has shown that uh, uh, bees and other insects can learn, can solve complex tasks, and can navigate complex environments. And I guess what's important to note is uh, why we're studying this in in insects is that not only do, I guess it's the combination of bees having cognitive abilities as well as very small brains in order to access and to study. So we can record from and study uh, individual neurons within the bee brain at the same time looking at the entire brain whereas larger animals there's just so many neurons and so much stuff there that it's it's hard to get at with the tools we have available today.
5: I think I would actually watch football if all the players were bees. That was Clint Perry from Queen Mary University of London and that study was published in the journal
3: Science. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me Katani and with Georgia Mills. This week for the main part of our show it's
5: climate change. 2016 was yet again the hottest year on record and the sheer rate of change us humans are causing could enter us into a mass extinction and risk making much
3: of our planet inhospitable. But you know, is climate change really such a big deal? And if so... Why aren't we doing more to stop it? We're going to be meeting one curious character that's already feeling the pinch of rising temperatures. We'll be discussing why, as a species, we might be hardwired to ignore the threat and looking at one way someone is trying to make a difference, starting with this, the humble coffee cup. But before that, let's meet our first player. Imagine, if
5: you will, a white shark about two metres long, with a happy smile. Now squish it flat, then give it an enormously long chainsaw for a nose, complete with sharp teeth-like protrusions up both sides. What you've got in your head is probably something like the sawfish.
3: Now, these oddities live in the ocean, but one species spends its youth in Australian rivers. As temperatures are on the up, the water they have to live in is already getting hotter. So how are they coping? Adrian Gleiss and Carissa Lear from Murdoch University have been probing the survival prospects of these fish, as Chris Smith found out.
11: Well, what we're trying to understand really is how changes in climate in the region and changes in land use practice um, through agriculture, how that is going to affect um, essentially the quality of the habitat for them. So they're a critically endangered animal. Fitzroy is probably one of the last really important nurseries for this species. So really trying to figure out, you know, what their threats, what threats they're facing and how we can basically change our behavior as humans to safeguard their, their habitats is really what we're, what we're after.
4: And how are you doing that?
12: Uh, We're using accelerometers, which is the same technology in your smartphone or a Fitbit, um, to measure the movement and activity patterns of these fish So, um, in correlation with temperature to see if they become more active or less active if the temperature rises or falls.
4: And obviously sharks don't have smartphones. So (laughs) how how are you doing that?
12: Um, So the accelerometers we use, we either can attach them externally to the dorsal fin of the fish or we can actually surgically implant them um, into their body cavity. The accelerometers we use also measure temperature. It's another factor. So same tags.
4: how do you get
11: the tags on these things? Well, there's there's two ways really. Um, I mean, we have two types of tags that we're using. One tag um, will stay on the animal for a very long time and will transmit its data. So what we do with those is we implant them into the animal itself, and we do that because it doesn't have any, you know, it doesn't cause any drag, and it can stay in the animal for a very long time. The other tag we're using is an external data logger, and that essentially we put on the animal. We, we drill a little hole through the fin. And attach it to the fin. And then when we catch an animal again, we can basically retrieve that, that unit
4: and can download the data. You said catch an animal. Are you
12: having to catch these
4: things? How big are they?
12: Well, the winds in the river can get up to about two and a half meters. How do you catch one of those? We mostly use gill nets. Um, so the, the sawfish with the teeth all the way down the rostra, they get caught pretty easily just with their nose in the gill net. And we can pull them up to the boat and onto shore.
4: So what do you Travel up to the Kimberley? you go and find a a promising-looking bend in the river where you think these things hang out and you just put nets in there?
12: Yes, (laughs) essentially.
4: (laughs) How many of you are there to pull in a fish that's two and a half metres long and and got very sharp bill teeth? How do you do that?
12: We usually have about three of us in the boat.
11: (laughs) We we have a lot of help from uh, indigenous um, ranger groups up there, so... That local knowledge for us is very important. You know, the, the guys take us to the, to the places where they've caught, where their grandparents and, you know, they've caught these animals for a long time. So we're not going completely blind. But at the same time, they're very remote places. So, you know, I mean, it basically involves us flying, flying to Derby first. And then in Derby, we get into our four-wheel drive. We put a boat on the roof and then it's 150 kilometers into the bush, essentially. And yeah, and without, without some of that knowledge of the locals, really, I mean, we'd, I
4: think we'd have a pretty hard time finding them in the first place. Talking of what you're finding, have you got data yet?
12: We have just started to get data back.
4: <laughs> and what, what's the trend that's emerging? What are you seeing?
12: Um, a lot of the fish look like they're doing a, a diel pattern with temperature. Well, during the day they'll rest in very cool places so that their energy expenditure is low. And then during the night when it's colder outside, um, they can hunt in the warmer water, um, which increases their muscle activity so they can actually hunt more easily in uh, warmer water.
4: And if one extrapolates that to what we think is happening with climate change and things like that, Adrian. Is, there, is this data promising? Does this suggest that this is quite a tolerant species or not?
11: Well, actually, that's a really interesting question. Um, so last year we had a very, very poor wet season, which means we had very little water in the river and we had a very, very hot, late dry. So we actually saw very, very high temperatures last year. And what we did see is that, you know, so activity or the potential for activity, it increases over temperature gradually, but then it usually gets to a certain point you know, a certain temperature upon which it declines very rapidly. And we're just starting to see that sort of tipping point in some of that data. So I think that they are resilient in the sense that they can, you know, they can quite happily sit in water of 33 degrees Celsius. But I don't think there's much wiggle room above that, really. And I think what we're going to start to see is we'll start to see us going over those tipping points more often in the future.
4: Do we not think, though, Carissa, that the animals could just move? Because if that becomes an inhospitable impropitious place for them to hang out presumably there will be other places potentially down the coast a bit that might be a little bit cooler where where they can still survive
12: well that might be a good option for pelagic species in the ocean that have a lot of different spaces that they can move into but these river systems there's only a couple rivers in northern australia and so the and they need these animals need to use that habitat for their nursery Um, and so they can't they don't really have a choice about where to live in those first few years of their life
4: so they are pretty tied to the environment?
11: Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's where your mum drops you off, isn't it? I mean, you know, if your mum drops you off in the mouth of this particular river, you know, you're going to swim up that stream of freshwater. And also, don't forget, I think especially those estuarine areas, you know, where they're born, there are a lot of saltwater crocodiles in there. And all you really want to do is a tiny little sawfish, and you know, you're born around 70 centimetres, you try and get into the fresh, you try and get into the shallow areas. Because I think in the estuary, you're just not going to have a particularly good time. So, yeah, no, I think you're very tied to where you're born. What do you think the long-term prospect is then? It's tough to say. I think it's um, as it gets hotter, the animals are definitely going to struggle more. But I think what's going to be very important is that um, we maintain a lot of water in the river. Because as long as there's a lot of water, we have those really deep holes you know, in the river. And those essentially offer sort of cool water refuges. And I think they're going to become more and more important as, um, as the environment gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And as long as that's the case, I think they'll probably be okay.
5: So let's keep our fingers crossed for those water weirdos. That was PhD student Carissa Lear and research fellow Adrian Gleiss, both from Murdoch University.
3: Now, that is a species we're already concerned about, but what about others 10, 20 years down the line? And to be honest, maybe while the welfare of sawfish isn't a top priority for most of us, how do we think climate change might impact on us? Something Adrian mentioned in that interview is the idea of a tipping point, something that many climate scientists are actually worried about. This is the idea that after a certain point, there is no going back and things are only going to keep getting worse. So how does this all work? We're joined now by James Dyke from Southampton University. He models human and earth interactions. So James, hi, can you just give us a little refresher? What is climate change? What's causing it? And are humans to blame?
13: Well, hello. Okay, first off, it's important to point out or at least remember that the earth's climate has always changed. If you go back far enough into earth's history, we'll see massive changes. So perhaps the biggest changes that we would observe over the ten thousands of year timescales would be the ice ages. So about ten to 100,000 years ago, the Earth was about 5 degrees cooler than it is, sea levels were about 120 metres lower, and much of northern Europe and northern America were under hundreds of metres of ice. Since the last ice age, the Earth system has been slowly warming up and uh, sea levels have been uh, increasing, But what we've witnessed over the last couple of hundred years has been really quite unprecedented rates of change of surface temperatures and other indicators that there is a significant warming pulse happening, largely as a consequence of human emissions of greenhouse gases.
3: And what do we mean by this concept of the tipping point? What does it look like and what are we tipping towards?
13: Well, many people think that climate change is a progressive and gradual thing. If it takes hundreds or thousands of years for the Earth's climate to reach a new equilibrium, then we may think that the climate and the Earth's system will kind of respond smoothly and linearly. So if you look at something like sea level rise, we're looking currently about three millimetres a year, which doesn't seem very much. But unfortunately, the Earth system seems to be full of these tipping elements. So when people talk about tipping elements or tipping points in the Earth's climate, they're they're often referring to what's proved to be a very influential study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences back in 2008, where they identified nine elements of the Earth system. So things like the Arctic sea ice or the Greenland ice sheet, the boreal forests or the Amazon forests or some uh, large functioning of oceanic currents. And what they're worried about, what they're worried about now and what we're increasingly becoming worried about is that you can drive the earth system so much and these systems respond sort of sluggishly but then you go beyond a point and they suddenly flip. They may flip into sort of positive feedback states where once they begin to change it will be effectively impossible for those things to be arrested.
3: So I guess it's a bit like you imagine all water just trickling slowly out of a bucket that's tilting but then at some point it's just going to overbalance and go and the whole lot comes out.
13: Yeah, so you've got this metaphor that you're rolling a great big boulder up to the top of a hill and it takes an awful lot of energy to get there and when it's right at the top it might be quite precariously balanced and then a slight nudge is enough to push it down to the other side and as soon as it starts rolling, it's going to have tremendous amounts of momentum and you're not going to be able to stop it. So when you're thinking about the, uh, the collapse of the Antarctic ice sheet, it looks as if certain regions of uh, Western Antarctica are melting, they're falling off into the ocean. Once that process begins, it's practically impossible for it to stop.
3: Is this really a point of no return? I mean, are there things that we can get back? We can't kind of rebuild icebergs, but is, is there anything we can slow or stop or, or reverse?
13: Well, there are some wacky ideas at the moment about putting in machines up in the Arctic to try and refreeze the Arctic. These things will cost hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars and they most probably won't work and we most probably won't be able to deploy them in time. Um, It sounds obvious, but the best thing that we can do to avoid these tipping points, or at least to reduce some of their impacts, is to significantly reduce our forcing on the Earth's climate, which means making significant reductions in greenhouse gas emissions.
3: And if we don't... If the worst happens, if we hit these tipping points uh, and that all this climate change massively accelerates, release of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere massively accelerates, the temperature goes up, um, what is going to happen? and on what kind of time scale, you know are we going to wake up in ten years' time and it's just an apocalypse out there?
13: Well, wherever we do end up, we want to be hopeful that we go there very slowly, because if the Earth's climate changes slowly, Then humans will be able to adapt, but then also other species too. So you may be able to find species that will be able to go up higher mountains or find uh, climate refugia. The worry about tipping points is that they can engender very rapid change. So at the moment, when you look at the current predictions of the total amount of warming that we seem to be locked into, um, it seems to be at least about 3 degrees Celsius. So we can visualise impacts in terms of the Earth's climate Through things that we care about, so our ability to get access to water, the impacts on ecosystems, our ability to grow food, uh, coastal communities, uh, impacts on human health. And as they increase beyond the already uh, established 1 degree Celsius of warming, those things increase in terms of impacts. And if we really do end up going beyond 3 degrees Celsius, so um, we're we're currently going beyond 3 degrees and maybe even 5 degrees within a couple of hundred years... Many people would argue that that is a recipe for the collapse of human civilization as we know it.
3: And so very, very briefly, we've got a few seconds left. There are some people who go basically, la, 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 I can't hear you. The earth has always changed. The climate's always changed. You know, this is all just basically made up by the Chinese mentioning no names. Mm -hmm. Um, If you had like a sentence to say to them to, to make them realize that this is a big problem, what would you say?
13: Climate change is happening right now. So if you're in Australia, in Sydney, you would have been experiencing 47 degrees Celsius of temperatures over the last week. You can't live your life like that. And that is important. That's kind of an omen of the future changes that are happening. And just off the coast, eastern coast of Australia, you have the ongoing collapse of one of the world's marvellous natural resources, the Great Barrier Reef, because of high temperatures. So climate change is happening right now, and it's going to be impacting much, much more over the following years.
3: Thank you very much. That is James Dyke from Southampton University. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat Arney, and with Georgia Mills. We're talking about climate change today, and
5: here's the big question. While 98% of scientists seem to be agreed and making the radical assumption no one actually wants to live in a destroyed world, why are we, as a species, so bad at doing stuff about it? It's, to be sure, a complex issue, but could it be partly down to the way we've evolved?
14: So I'm George Marshall. I'm the founder of Climate Outreach, and I'm the author of Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. Climate change is a really tricky challenge for us because the the, the rational side of our brains can appreciate it for being a major threat. And anybody who looks in any detail at this, especially the underlying science, comes away very concerned, but it's hard to hold on to that concern because unfortunately it doesn't really seem to have many of the qualities that trigger that visceral, emotional sense of concern. It's distant, it's dispersed, it's quite difficult to get your head around. It doesn't make a kind of an intuitive sense, really, that we're putting invisible gases out into the atmosphere, which change the weather. Uh, We don't have any real precedent for this or things to draw on. These are all the qualities which make us concerned about things, is that they're issues that are here, that are now, that we've seen before. And really the the quality that alerts us most to things that we should worry about is that there's an enemy that wants to cause us harm. That's why we respond so strongly to issues like terrorism. And the problem is climate change fits very badly with that as well. We get very upset and angry about unfairness, where people want to cause harm, where people want to cause violence. Climate change will be violent in terms of its impacts, but nobody at any point in this actually wants to cause harm. So what I'd say of it is, it, is it's almost a perfectly constructed to bypass all of the, uh, the systems we depend upon to tell us that something is dangerous. And that's why you get into this very tricky situation where people rationally accept it's a problem, but emotionally don't.
5: What is it about our, I suppose, our biology or the way our brains are built that makes us ignore it in this way?
14: One of the arguments out there, as I said, is that it it doesn't seem to fit very well with what we have been historically adapted to deal with. But underlying that is the fact that we have been adapted to not be too worried about things. People who are constantly anxious and are constantly being triggered by concern perform less well. So, therefore, what we have in our brains is a very interesting balance between the capacity to be worried about things and and become engaged and take action, but also the capacity to ignore things and not take action. And it's those two qualities. The problem with climate change is that it it works quite well to the capacity to push things on one side. We tend not to think about things that are, are... somewhat in the future, because who knows, situations might change. We tend to prioritise things in, in the present, for example. These are all very, very deeply embedded, long-term evolutionary behaviours, which are sensible. They're part and parcel of our survival.
5: How do we tackle this? No one wants to hear about it. No one wants to address it. We're just built that way. What do we do?
14: The really simple in a nutshell answer is we give it a social shape and form What makes all of a difference for whether people accept or or deny climate change is whether it speaks to their culture, their values, and their identity. You know, it's not impossible. I mean, there are are very large numbers of people who are deeply concerned about climate change, and some of those people vote on that principle. Some of them even get arrested. They demonstrate. There were 400,000 people on the streets of New York protesting about it. It's not impossible. But the reason that they could do that is because it had come to be built around a set of narratives and values that spoke to them and who they are. Similarly, very, very intelligent, well-educated people will deny the existence of climate change because that denial narrative speaks very well to who they are. So, really, the way we bypass this is we make it social. Climate change is something that people like us believe in, whoever we are. This is a faith issue. This is a Muslim issue. This is a conservative issue. This is a business issue. This is a, an artist's issue. And then it becomes persuasive as we start hearing from it from people like ourselves. And if there's one thing which galvanises us into action, it's the fact that we think that something is part and parcel of the identity of the group around us.
5: How does that happen? Is that sort of the responsibility of people in those parts of society to persuade everyone else in their group?
14: I think it has to happen as it were, proactively and reactively. Um, Proactively, I think that governments, organizations, scientists who wish to galvanize action on this enable people to have that conversation and they help to give climate change a shape that can be passed on in that way. I think networks that have different identities and different ways of reaching people proactively engage with it. So Um, hugely excited, of course, by what the the Pope Francis did, where he started a conversation within the Catholic Church based around Catholic social teaching around climate change. I'd like to see that happen within every faith group or or indeed any group where people have a set of said values. But I also think as individuals, as individuals, if there's anyone listening who is concerned about climate change, you have to recognize that there is a social silence around this issue that whereby people actively suppress conversation about it. And I think you need to recognise there's an enormous amount of power and importance in the conversations you have with the people around you.
5: And what way is it best to bring it up? Because when you see an article or you hear someone constantly bringing up climate change, you can, even if you completely agree, part of you is like, oh, not again, here they go again. What kind of message should you be giving out to people when you are trying to change their minds?
14: I think it's like any kind of conversation... Uh, imagine a situation where people are very passionate about a, a lifestyle issue, like, for example, um, their diet. If you just lecture people about it and say, oh, you really shouldn't be doing that, that's very, very bad. You push people away and you're just generally <laughs> irritating. <laughs> I think the important thing to do is just to hold something as a core value that you bring up where it's appropriate, you share it where you can. I think certainly it's important we talk about climate change around extreme weather events, I think talking about it in the workplace, saying, are we as a company, are we as an organisation thinking about this, are we prepared for this? The most important conversations, of course, are not just the ones we have with each other, but the ones where politicians ask us what we think. That is really, really important. If you have an opportunity to engage with key decision makers, absolutely put it on the table.
5: That was George Marshall. He's founder of Climate Outreach, which is a climate
3: change communication charity. So... Being concerned about climate change and doing something about it is not just for hippies, it is for all of us, and more and more people are starting to make changes on a personal and on a societal level. And one person who decided to take matters into her own hands joins us now. It's Safia Kureshi. She's founder and CEO of something called Cup Club, which aims to reduce the waste from single-use takeaway coffee cups. So, hi Safia. First of all, can you tell me how much is actually wasted from these lovely paper cups like like the one I've just got from the BBC coffee
15: machine. <laughs> I know, I should just take that away from you right now. Um, in the UK, we found actually coffee cups are one in five most polluting items in our city. I know that sounds completely bonkers. And... Wow. It's very difficult to visualise it, but if you think of what we did with plastic bags and how much of a crazy endemic plastic bags were, um, paper cups are also a very close second. So we found in the UK we consume 2.5 billion paper cups a year.
3: But they're paper. Surely paper (laughs) is like biodegradable, it's recyclable, right? No, uh, none of that, no.
15: Um, So paper cups are not a mono material. Now, any material scientist will tell you that putting together more than one material makes it a very complex product to then deal with later on in the waste stream. So... The word paper cups is very misleading because naturally uh, paper is not resilient to water or moisture. I think if it was a true paper cup it would fall you know fall apart in your hand and you'd probably scorch it. So the internal lining of most paper cups is a material called polyethylene and it counts to between two to five percent of the entire uh, material um, product. So
3: It's essentially um, two products that are bound together and you can't get them apart and you can't recycle them. So what is Cup Club? How have you tried to solve this problem of the paper cup? So what we developed is a cup essentially, which is a solid cup. You buy
15: your coffee in the same way that you always do, but we developed return points. So instead of throwing it in a bin, you return it at a drop point that we develop and design. And
3: then, you know, do do you get any money back? What do you do if you give your cup back and Don't just bin it or pile them all up at home like all my reusable bags. Exactly. So you get a deposit that gets
15: returned to you. You get incentives. So we're developing all kinds of incentives. Or like if you
3: return 10 cups, you can get free coffee or something. Uh, Or reduced coffee. That's uh, (laughs) something we're negotiating with
15: retailers. Yes,
3: there's definitely a reward that we need to give users for doing the right thing. So, I mean, I've got my... This is my own personal reusable cup. It's a lovely shade of grey and green Uh, I got from the Roslyn Institute in Edinburgh. And so I take this around with me and make my own coffee. But the idea is that you would have, you get your cup clean, new with your coffee, or cleaned with your coffee, and then you return it and get the deposit back. So it's not like this is something that you take home and own. Exactly. You do not keep the cup. That's a whole entire model. (laughs) And how do you think this is actually? going to work? Have people said they'll get on board with this kind of scheme?
15: So we've trialled it with our first education partner in the university um, at the Royal College of Art and we did extremely well. We initiated it through Students First because they're again generation Y, they have born into a time of crisis, very passionate about getting involved in sustainable products and drink a lot of coffee and drink a lot of coffee to do all of that work so we did we had a huge amount of success and now we're rolling that out to further universities this year so yes you'll see a lot of change
3: if you can get this kind of scheme to work so if you can significantly reduce paper cup Consumption. What are we talking about in terms of carbon dioxide saved? Consuming energy into a product that is reused many,
15: many times is a lot more efficient than making products that consume energy and is only used the one time. So by increasing the um, reusability and the way that you um, optimize a product means that you're using less energy over its life cycle which immediately has a massive co2 output reduction so we've calculated from manufacturing perspective that actually 15 paper cups in terms of plastic is the same as one of our cups so if we then calculate it right well our product is reused up to a thousand times And we do a little bit of simple maths. We realize that we actually reduce CO2 by half a kg just by transitioning ourselves to a reusable cup. So by simply calculating on a per cup use, we were able to calculate year on year what our CO2 reduction savings would be, which Um, starts to go into the thousands of tonnes. So it ends up just in manufacturing terms, 18,000
3: tonnes. What about other things? You know, I go into a a high street chain, I buy a salad and I've got my little plastic knife and fork, I've got the box that it comes in. Could you do the same thing with all these kind of things? You could, absolutely.
15: And I, what I'd like to see is that this actually triggers a whole movement of returnable food boxes, returnable or refillable bottles so we don't see you know all kinds of plastic packaging egg on egg
3: boxes i remember Just going down the shop with my egg box what about like a nice you could do egg boxes egg box.
15: there you go cat yeah. that's a, that's a startup idea
3: right and, uh, I, that's mine yes yeah, <laughs> well i think i think that's wonderful what is your your future vision for this kind of idea and technology my future
15: vision is zero waste my future vision is enjoying enjoying your everyday and being able to do something good without it costing you too much. And um, like a lot of, you know, the talks that we heard today about climate change, it can be really heavy, and it can be quite daunting. And what we wanted to do was develop a product that would align with people's values, something really simple as making a decision, do I want it in a more sustainable product than what I currently
3: have, giving people options. Thank you very much. That's Safia Qureshi. And thanks to our other guests this week. That's James Dyke, Carissa Lear, Adrian Gleiss and George Marshall.
5: And now it's time for Question of the Week with Ricky Navani. He looked into this bursting
4: question from Steve. I always seem to go for a pee within 30 minutes of drinking a cup of tea. And when I'm using the toilet, I often say to myself, is that the same cup of tea I'm getting rid of? How much of that drink was absorbed into my body? So if I go for a pee within an hour of drinking a cup, is it the same liquid I'm getting rid of?
10: So, if we pee just after we drink something, how much of that drink is in the urine and how quickly does it get there? We asked kidney connoisseur and professor of medicine at University College London, David Wheeler, to break down the journey of our favourite brew in the body.
16: So when we drink a cup of tea, the components of the tea will be absorbed from the intestines into the body. So, for example, the water from the tea will be absorbed, the proteins and fats from the milk will be absorbed, and the sugar, if we added it to the tea, will be absorbed. And these different components are then distributed to different parts of the body in the bloodstream.
10: Okay. so the tea gets out of our digestive tract through the intestines and into the bloodstream.
16: But how does the tea actually become pea? The fluid is critical, obviously, for normal health, and the fluid balance in the body is tightly regulated by the kidneys. So if when Stephen drank the cup of tea, he didn't really need the extra fluid, then the kidneys could get rid of that fluid fairly quickly. We could think of this as a bathtub full of water with an overflow. If we add another jug of water to the bath, then some of the water in the bath will go down the overflow pipe. Now, this may not be the same water that we've just added in, but it'll be from the same pool of water that we've just added the jug to.
10: Aha! So, if your blood is like a bathtub with a capacity for carrying a certain amount of water, then adding in too much will cause it to spill over when it's in the kidneys and make urine. Although it's difficult to say how much of that came from the new water, or the water that was already there before you drank your tea, some parts of your tea could leave your body within 30 minutes. Thanks for clearing that up for us, David. And with all this talk of peeing, I think I have to go. But before I do, a sneak peek at our question for next week, when we try to shine a light on this question from
16: Philip. My home in Cambridge has about 60% compact fluorescent light bulbs, and the rest are LEDs. Should I be chucking out the former, even though they still work, on the grounds that they use lots of power compared with LEDs? Or should I just wait until they break over time and only replace them with LEDs then?
3: If you can shed some light on this issue, do let us know. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook.
5: Next week, it's time for one of our Q&A programmes. If you've got a question you'd like one of our experts to answer, do send it in to us at chris at com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Georgia Mills and thank you for listening.
0: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.